So as I referred to briefly earlier, I spent the, this past week braving the wintry climbs of Chicago, which it turns out, you know, due to global warming or whatever, really wasn't actually that bad. Uh, I spent the last week taking a week-long crash course in Unitarian Universalist history. Now, I'm not sure I fully appreciated in advance, I just hadn't really thought all the way through it, that I had signed up to spend five days straight, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., sitting through history lectures. That's a full 40-hour work week of all history, all the time. Now, fortunately, the, the professor was engaging, and my classmates were smart and interesting, and there were presentations and discussions to balance out the lectures. Now, this class is one task in a long list of requirements necessary for me to come fully into fellowship with the Unitarian Universalist Association. And when I was sharing that long list of requirements with one of my friends, his response was, I didn't know you had to work so hard to hang a question mark around your neck. (laughs) What he meant, I think, is that, uh, and this is someone who's actually highly sympathetic to Unitarian Universalism, but uh, what I think he meant is that UUism is famously comfortable with diversity, ambiguity, and pluralism. As the joke goes, where there are three UUs, there are at least eight opinions. And as a whole, we UUs can be better sometimes at asking the hard questions than at reaching any definitive answers, and sometimes saying maybe there isn't a definitive answer. So as I've reflected on my friend's good-natured joke that I didn't know you had to work so hard to hang that question mark around your neck, I think my considered response is that all the hard work and time required to be uh, what's called in final fellowship with the Unitarian Universalist Association, which I think will happen for me sometime around 2017 is the current prediction. Seriously. Uh, it's, uh, that I think all that hard work and time is precisely a response to what is necessary to responsibly hanging that metaphorical question mark around your neck. I love being part of a congregation that includes atheists and Christians, Buddhists and humanists, Jews and pagans, all under the big tent of Unitarian Universalism. But negotiating that robust religious pluralism is a delicate dance that we do pretty well together, but it's a delicate dance. And I'm grateful for the opportunity I had this past week to study in depth how our Unitarian Universalist forebears negotiated diversity and conflict in their day. And at our best, I've heard um, various of my UU colleagues say, at our best, we're not actually an interfaith organization. We draw from many different sources, but we're trying to do something more than just the sum of our constituent parts. We really are trying to be, what does it mean to be a Unitarian Universalist that draws from all these sources, not um, not just our parts individually siloed? And so I'm even more convinced after this past week that it really matters what stories we choose to tell from our history and that our stories really matter. We're inheritors of a tremendous legacy of women and men who blazed the path that we now walk. One of the people to whom we're indebted for helping tell our history is a man named Earl Morse Wilbur who in the mid-20th century published a two-volume history of Unitarianism, which weighs in at more than a 1,000 pages. So I was grateful for my professor's recommendations of which chapters to read and which to, uh, which to skim or skip. 
Uh, one sometimes unappreciated part of his feat is that to write this history required reading primary source material not only in Latin and the Euro- European languages you would typically expect or that are typically required of PhD candidates, uh, but also Polish and Hungarian, which are pretty difficult languages. As one of many anecdotes of why languages such as Polish and Hungarian came to be vital to Unitarianism, uh, the history's first and only Unitarian king, we, we do have one, uh, was John Sigismund of Transylvania. He actually passed uh, in 1568 a landmark act of religious toleration and freedom of conscience. Now, it wasn't for everybody. It was only for about four groups. I think the Catholics, the Lutherans, the Reformers, and the Unitarians, because he was one. Uh, and it's called the Edict of Torda. But to return to that broad sweep of Earl Wilbur's massive historical survey, Wilbur notes three recurring themes or trends in the Unitarian half of our history. Freedom of religious thought, the unrestricted use of reason, and tolerance of different views and practices. Now, there are people that contest that, but that's his... You know, I think once you've written a thousand pages on Unitarian history, you're entitled to your opinion of what some prominent trends are. And perhaps of significance, given our ongoing discussion here at UCF of what are our congregational values, Wilbur's three phrases could be distilled down to three values, freedom, reason, and tolerance. Indeed, as some of you have heard me say previously from this pulpit, the liberal turn in religion can be seen precisely as the move from authority that's vested in hierarchy, community, and tradition to authority derived from reason and individual experience. So seeing reason and individual experience as equally legitimate sources of authority as tradition and community and hierarchy. And that's a large part of our inheritance today. Predecessors who are willing to put their lives on the line even to question entrenched values, entrenched authorities, uh, or unjust hierarchies. To question the ways that a community can become a tyranny of the majority. And to question the ways that traditions can prevent progress. So that question mark that others can perceive us as hanging around our neck is a well-earned question mark. And many Unitarians and Universalists were persecuted or killed, again, for the right to ask those hard questions. At the same time, I don't think the old joke is completely fair to ask, what do you get when you cross an evangelist with a Unitarian Universalist? Someone who goes around knocking on doors for no particular reason. (laughs) So, first of all, uh, to contend with that joke, uh, though there's some truth there. Uh, Wilbur's three values point out whom we have been historically as Unitarian Universalists. And in contrast, individuals and groups that do not value freedom, that don't value reason, and that don't value tolerance may well feel displaced within or by our movement. And that can make us uncomfortable. We like to be an inclusive, a welcoming people. But people that aren't about freedom and reason and tolerance often don't feel welcome in our our communities, and and there's a reason for that, despite how large and how big the UU tent can be. Rebecca Ann Parker, who I mentioned earlier, is the president of Starking School for the Ministry in Berkeley, California, a very conservative place. 
uh, has pointed out that there are some theological options that are outside the pale, even for Unitarian Universalists, even as broadly inclusive theologically as UUism is. She says we have room for many different understandings of God or of, for people who don't believe in God. But you can't be a Unitarian Universalist. And we, we don't like to hear that, right? We like to say, you might be a Unitarian Universalist if, or you may be a UU and not know it. But she actually is inviting us to consider that you can't be a Unitarian Universalist and hold the view that God is the all-powerful determiner of everything that happens. Such a view would violate the cherished UU value of human freedom and responsibility. Second, she would say you can't believe many different perspectives. You can believe many different perspectives about the afterlife. You can believe that there's no afterlife and find a comfortable place for yourself within Unitarian Universalism. But you can't believe that there will be an, an eternal separation of the saved from the damned in which the good are rewarded with eternal bliss and the damned are punished with eternal suffering. Such a view would violate our first principle that all people have inherent worth and dignity. Even more problematically, it would violate the entire universalist half of our heritage, which holds that whatever we mean by salvation is universal and not limited to some group. Now, you can believe that we create hell, for earth, you know, hell on earth for ourselves. You can definitely believe that. Third, uh, and there's only one more after this. Third, many UUs are understandably more drawn to one or more of the six sources. Uh, if you look at our six sources in the uh, order of service, many UUs are understandably drawn more to one or uh, a few than all of them for a variety of reasons related to personal proclivities or backgrounds. You may feel more comfortable coming to the Buddhist group versus the Servetus group versus the humanist group. Um, but you can't be a Unitarian Universalist and believe that one religion encompasses the exclusive final truth for all times and places. Historically, there have been hard-fought battles in our tradition, particularly with some individuals and groups who wanted to keep Christianity front and central and exclusive and primary. But the decisive shift was eventually toward a robust religious pluralism that explicitly includes the Jewish and Christian tradition, but as only one of many legitimate sources of authority. Fourth, you can believe many different views about this world and even about the next world, but you can't hold the view that salvation is to be found solely beyond this world. There is a long-standing tradition in Unitarian Universalism of valuing this world and this life here and now. So importantly, what I've been describing is by no means a creed. It's, this is not, if you really read through what I've been saying, this is not something that you could set up before a new member class and say, do you believe all these things? I've just actually just been naming a few things that you can't believe and still be perhaps arguably within the circle, the increasingly wide circle that you use are trying to draw. In each case that I've been exploring, the starting point is exactly the opposite of that. It's the wide, expansive number of positions that you can hold and be fully comfortable within UUism. And as a rule, I'm generally more in favor of emphasizing that large swath of beliefs and practices that our tradition includes and gratefully includes. But there are lessons from our history about what our predecessors have found as incompatible with core values like freedom, reason, and, and tolerance. And maybe you can find a way to be even more inclusive than that. And if so, let's talk. 
Now, speaking of our historical tradition, one of the stereotypes of Unitarian Universalism is that our young people, and perhaps some of our adult members as well, often know more about Buddhism, for example, than they do about Unitarian Universalism. Some of the statistics I've seen are that 85 to 90 percent of UUs today were not raised at Unitarian Universalists. So we'll do a quick test. How many of you here today were raised Unitarian Universalist? How many of you were not raised Unitarian Universalists? The statistics <laughs> don't lie in this case. All right. So, so the question becomes, what happened to all those young people, right, that were raised Unitarian Universalists? Where, where are they? Uh, they're Buddhist, right? Right. <laughs> not there's anything wrong with that, yeah. So the stereotype is that our children may share our ideals in the abstract, but feel no loyalty to the institution that gives those values validity and viability long-term. Not validity, viability. Fortunately, efforts are being made in our religious education curricula to emphasize UU history and practice. But we continue to be better as a whole and as a people as at individualism that, than at institutionalism. Um, one of the great examples of this from UU history is in the 19th century when people think of what's a famous Unitarian from the 19th century. We all, some people would often go to Emerson first. But perhaps the more, uh, one of the most important ones was actually a guy named Henry Bellows. And what he did was help found the National Conference of Unitarians. If you'll remember, Emerson stopped being a Unitarian. He walked out of his Unitarian church and preferred to go on the Lyceum circuit, partially because his uh, wife died and left him a lot of money, which made that possible. But Henry Bellows is much more a reason that modern Unitarianism exists, because he did the hard work of bringing these independent, of herding the cats in the 19th century, uh, whereas Emerson just went out and wrote some brilliant essays that we're grateful for. So, but, and that gets back to the stories that we tell mattered. Are we always just telling the story of Emersonian individualism? Are we ever telling the story of people like Henry Bellows? So if we value the principles and sources of Unitarian Universalism and want them to be available for future generations, then we need to look beyond even our local congregations to the past, present, and future of the broader Unitarian Universalist movement. And part of how we can do that is by learning the stories of our successes and failures as a movement. For this morning, because I doubt any of you want to be here for a repeat of the 40-hour uh, UU history marathon, I don't think you want that in sermon form this morning, I'm going to limit myself to just a few more highlights um, from UU history, and I'll continue to weave pieces of UU history into future sermons and classes, of course. So in telling the story of the two historical uh, historical streams, proto-Unitarianism and proto-Universalism that followed intersecting paths, eventually became more formalized and eventually merged in 1961 to become consolidated. Thank you. The lawyers are going to get on me. Thank you, Danielle. Uh, to become Unitarian Universalism, I could rewind the clock. Yeah, no, I, I really like merger better, though. Consolidation just seems awkward, but yeah, this, it's apparently really important, I'm told. Uh, I could rewind the clock all the way back to early Christian history and to the battles of early church leaders like Arius and Athanasius in the 4th century uh, over defining the nature and character of Jesus in relationship to God. And it was probably an early sign that I would be drawn to UUism that I was always convinced more by Arius. I was like, actually, I think Arius was right uh, that, uh, versus Athanasius was on the side of orthodoxy. 
So although Arius had a significantly high view of Jesus' relationship to God, Arius' willingness to stand up against the camp that eventually established the orthodox view of the Christian trinity helped establish Arius and his supporters as laying the groundwork for future Unitarians that would fully reject the trinity. From the Universalist side, we could look to early Christian leaders like Origen of Alexandria, who early in the 3rd century was already speculating um, about Universalist themes, that ultimately God's love would save everyone. He was eventually excommunicated. It was like a long time after his death. It took him a while, I think, to read everything that he wrote and notice how heretical some of it was. But to increase the relevancy for us today, I'll fast forward more than a thousand years to some of those early, uh, from some of these early proto-Unitarians and proto-Universalists to the Reformation period and the life of Michael Servetus, who's the namesake of our own Servetus Society, a group that meets monthly here at UUCF to focus on the fourth source of UUism, which is the Christian tradition. Many of you will recall that the printing press was invented in 1455 by Johannes Gutenberg. And it became increasingly possible, as, and as it, that printing press made it increasingly possible to study the Bible for yourself instead of just believing what the priests and the religious hierarchy said was in the Bible. And Michael Servetus was stunned to discover in his own studies that there was no mention of the Trinity in the Bible. That's actually what Arius and Athanasius were fighting about in the 4th century. So, you know, more than 300 years after Jesus, it was abundantly unclear that there was a Christian doctrine of the Trinity. That's what this big battle was about. And Servetus was particularly disturbed by this discovery because he knew of people who had been persecuted, discriminated against, tortured, killed for not believing in the Trinity. So he seemed like this, this is information people should need and should want to know. And as you you study Servetus' life in depth, uh, he does have an arrogant streak. But there's also a sense in which he he seemed to genuinely think that uh, when he published this book in 1531 called um, On the Errors of the Trinity, uh, very subtle, uh, that he was not only correcting a misperception about the Bible, but he seemed to really honestly think that people would want this information and would read his rational arguments and take them seriously and, and, be, uh, and open themselves to being convinced by it. The unfortunate reality is that many religious authorities, both Catholic and Protestant, the, his fellow reformers, perceived Servetus's proto-Unitarian arguments to be, the language they used was an infection, or a poisonous threat to Christianity. And what do you do with an infection? You know, you, you cut it out, or you, and that's exactly how they, they treated it. So accordingly, Servetus changed his name, went into hiding, and went to medical school. And during this period, actually published a landmark finding about uh, pulmonary circulation. But to cut to the end of Servetus's actually fascinating life story, there's a book about him with the title, The Hunted Heretic. Uh, Servetus was eventually found, tried, and executed in John Calvin's Geneva for the crimes of anti-Trinitarianism and anti-Pado-Baptism, which means he was against baptizing infants. He thought you should have to be an adult and really understand what you were um, getting into. From Calvin's perspective, sacrificing Servetus was necessary to defend God's honor. You really get into trouble here, right, when you're... uh, defending God's honor, that the majesty of God, the salvation of souls, and the stability of Christendom was at stake. So what is one man's life against that perception of all of that? 
But Servetus's life, his published works, and his tragic martyrdom helped embolden others to question the entrenched religious authorities and to help show that increased religious tolerance was desperately needed. So episodes like this didn't reoccur with such frequency. One of the most powerful examples of someone influenced by Servetus's martyrdom is a man named Sebastian Castelio, who, although not necessarily in agreement with Servetus's uh, theology, was horrified at what happened to Servetus and recognized that Servetus was intelligent and that they could agree to disagree without killing each other. So he really rose fiercely to condemn Servetus's wrongful death, writing, to kill a man is not to protect a doctrine. It is merely to kill a man. Today, the choice to name our UU Christian group, the Servetus Society, is to remind ourselves of how hard fought and how vital it is to protect each individual's right to the free and responsible search for truth and meaning. At the same time, in talking about all the trouble that early Unitarians and Universalists got into for rejecting the Trinity and rejecting the idea of the eternal torment uh, in hell, it's important also to emphasize how much more complicated the two movements ultimately were, as well as that they really just became about much more than just rejecting some tenet of uh, Christian orthodoxy. Perhaps one of the most important trends that eventually helped lay the groundwork for that 1961 consolidation of the American Unitarian Association and the Universalist Church of America was that both Unitarianism and Universalism began to emphasize hope for change in this world, to make this world a better place. The Transcendentalist movement and Unitarianism really encouraged its adherents to find meaning in this world, to, to, find, to be able to worship in nature, not just in sanctuaries, to find religious meaning and experience in all aspects of this world. Think about Emerson's essay, Nature, or Thoreau's essay, Walking. Universalists, likewise, began to emphasize not only universal salvation in the next world, but universal salvation here and now, the universal community of all women and men, and the necessity of working toward the secular realization of community through peace and justice on this earth. To also name one of the stumbling blocks that kept the Unitarians and the Universalists apart for so long, uh, before that 61 consolidation, the Unitarians tended to come from the upper classes and weren't, in all seriousness, always willing to talk to the Universalists. Uh, Channing, who's a very famous uh, 19th century preacher in Unitarianism, would not deign to talk to Hosea Ballou, who was a very intelligent, articulate uni Universalist um, pastor, both in Boston, blocks apart. One classic joke about this economic divide from a 19th century minister, Thomas Starking, after whom that uh, UU seminary on the West Coast is named, he served in both, one of the few people back then who served in both Unitarian and Universalist settings. He used to say that Universalists think that God is too good to damn them forever. Unitarians think that they are too good to be damned forever. So... There's much more I'd like to say about um, the women in, the, in Unitarian Universalist history, such as Margaret Fuller, her significant influence on transcendentalism. She was part of that transcendentalist club that Emerson and others were a part of, or the whole of Olympia Brown's fascinating and inspiring life. She lived from 
1835 to 1926. So you can think as a woman in America living from 1835 to 1926, she saw a pretty profound shift as far as the equality of African Americans, the equality of women. And she helped put significant cracks in what many female ministers have called the stained glass ceiling. In 1861, Olympia Brown forced her way into the halls of the male-only theological education institution through the sheer force of her will. She was actually written a letter by the president that said something along the lines of, uh, you know, I, I really don't think that God wants women to be ministers. But he didn't actually say she couldn't come. He just said that in his opinion, he thought that so she came anyway and... And achieved a, got a theological education in 1861 and was the first woman to achieve full ministerial standing recognized by a denomination. There's actually an amazing book called Prophetic Sisterhood about all of the particularly universalist women in the late, second half of the 19th century about their stories, about, they basically, went and took in the West all the pulpits that these Harvard-educated men wouldn't de- you know, deign to take and did really, really well in them. And, so it's, uh, and then they would occasionally send Harvard men to go out there and help them, and, and they were terrible, right? So these men that were just fresh out of Harvard were terrible pastors, whereas these, and they really changed, changed the way that ministry is done even to this day. Uh, But both uh, Olympia Brown and Margaret Fuller deserve sermons of their own at a future date, uh, as do the fascinating histories around the humanist controversy and Unitarian Universalism, the black empowerment controversy, which rocked our denomination in the late 60s. There were walkouts. There were uh, really a lot of wrestling over money and power, um, both uh, challenging and, I mean, really still has uh, reverberations to this day. And so many other fascinating figures and groups that have shaped our movement. But as a note in closing, as I've been working my way through this long required reading list uh, for the Ministerial Fellowship Committee, which is the credentialing body uh, of the Unitarian Universalist uh, Association, I've been struck by the relatively small number of sermons that are actually required uh, reading to become a UU minister. Among the required sermons, I'd mentioned early William Um, William Ellery Channing, he has an 1819 sermon called Unitarian Christianity, which is very landmark in giving, uh, making pastors feel like they had permission to ask some questions that people hadn't felt they had permission to ask. He has an 1828 sermon called Likeness to God, which has very positive views about human nature uh, as opposed to very negative views like all humans are depraved which comes out of Calvinism, as well as Theodore Parker's 1841 sermon, The Transient and the Permanent in Christianity. Now, perhaps if the doors were open much beyond these unarguably important uh, historic sermons, uh, too many egos would get wounded about whose sermons were included and excluded from the required list. But I did begin to reflect on what it might look like to preach a sermon in a Unitarian Universalist congregation in the early 21st century that would in time become required reading for all Unitarian Universalist ministers. Now, I don't have the answer to that yet, but I'll... I'll let you know if I come up with a sermon that's that paradigm shifting. Uh, but perhaps the larger point is that studying UU history not only helps us avoid an unintentional or harmful or unnecessary repetition of our history where we've gone wrong, but also challenges us to make a difference in the world that makes history for future generations. And even as I look forward to continuing um, to explore with all of you about how we individually and how the uh, UUCF collectively may be called to make 
UU history. I'd like to invite us to re-experience a piece of Unitarian Universalist history. In 1961, one year before the official consolidation, not merger, the Unitarians and the Universalists came together separately in Boston, which is like UU Mecca, if you haven't figured that out at this point. Uh, Each group voted overwhelmingly for consolidation. And the delegates present on that historic occasion said that the real emotional climax of the, you know, uh, of the deliberations, which have been going on for really decades, came as the two groups joined together after the vote for worship. As they collectively streamed into the sanctuary as a new united and uniting body, they sang the processional hymn, As Tranquil Streams. And that hymn had been written uh, reflecting on this really century-long process of how long it took the UUs to totally merge together. Uh, It was written about their growing closeness as a denomination. They sang this hymn over and over until every one of the delegates was all in the sanctuary. So as with so many moments in history, we should recognize that the vote could have been otherwise and often almost was and and was the other way in, in previous years. Something kept them separate. But in this case, years of work and hope resulted in inclusivity and unity. And our sixth principle holds up that lofty goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. But history shows us how difficult it was for even two liberal denominations with so much in common to actually merge. But we have to start somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, right. As we sing together this historic hymn that recalls a bold step forward for unity, may we all be inspired in our ongoing hope and work for greater peace, for greater liberty, for greater justice for all.